Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge Television. Hey, did you know Bass Edge Television is currently on Wild TV in Canada? Well, it sure is, and we'll be back on the Versus Network starting in January of 08. Outdoors Dan here, and my host, co-host, host of the most, Aaron Martin is here with me. Aaron, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Dan. How's it? I missed you last week. How did everything go? I know. I'm, ex- I'm excited to uh, get, get a few surprises to share with you. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll get into that. Hey, this we got a great podcast this week. We're going to be speaking with Bass Elite competitor Alton Jones, who I know you know very well. Yes, he's a, he's a great guy and, and just really a, a fantastic fisherman. Well, there you go. I'm excited about that. And then we're going to visit with someone who I do not know, and that is Keith Nesmith. And Keith's going to be talking about fishing line, right? Yeah, that is right. He's going to tell us everything uh, we wanted to know and more concerning fishing line. Well, hey, I get a chance to meet somebody new and learn something. I'm excited. Hey, folks, don't forget, we'll also answer the listener email question and give away some great prizes to this week's lucky winner. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. Oh, look here. I got one. I got one. Look here. <laughs> I mean, he whacked that football jig. The blades will dictate a lot of times the speed of the retrieve or the depth of that bait. Oh, good fish. Good fish. Did you see him come off that log? Woo, look at that son of a gun, man. That's awesome. You know, you've got to just stay active. Fishing is not easy. Oh, man, that's a toad. This is unbelievable. Wow, it's great to be back. I tell you what, Aaron, I can't believe being gone a week. I'm, I'm feeling like I'm sort of still tied up at the dock and the motor's already left without <laughs> you, you did a little traveling, you know, and uh, Steve uh, Brigman stepped in in your absence. We didn't tear the house down too much, you know, while you were gone. We kept, we kept everything pretty much low-key. So, but how did your hunting trip go? Oh, it went great. We was up at Arrowhead Wilderness Lodge up in Brimson, Minnesota, filming Outdoors Traditions, and we got a really nice black bear, and I actually just took the bear over to the processor. I quartered the bear when we were up there, and I can't wait till I get some bear sausage back and some back straps, and it's always fun to go up there and do some hunting in Minnesota. It's pretty neat, and you know, they have a little fishing up there as well. Well, did you, were you able to, to take advantage of any of that? No, I was flinging arrows. Yeah. yeah. Had, had to keep the focus, right? Didn't, yeah, just had to do that. And, well, but, hey, you know, a lot of stuff was happening while I was gone, and uh, I want to say thanks for Steve for filling in for me. That took a little pressure off, and I'm sure both of you guys did a great job. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun, you know, and brought a, a little different flavor, and he brought us up to speed on some of the great things and, and got to share some of his stories. He'd, he'd been doing a, a little bit of fishing, uh, traveling down on the Buffalo River, and then also was down on Lake Fork in Texas. So it's all well, but we've had a busy, busy week, I can tell you that. And we had the uh, the Midwest Outdoor Writers Conference uh, this past weekend, and uh, one of our uh, uh, actually I attended that, but one of our very own uh, Bass Edge Pro Staff members was uh, one of the key speakers, and that was Dr. Jay McNamara. So uh, it it went really well, and I know that his book and kind of the the topic of performance psychology has has been uh, really one of the hot topics, and I think there was about 27, 28 outdoor writers from all over that uh, that was there so it was a great great time no that sounds like a lot of fun well you know what lake amistad i've been hearing a lot of stuff about that do you really think the bass are going to be that big on this time of year this in that lake boy you know i am i am hoping so this this lake has received so so much coverage and and obviously there's been some tremendous weights that's came out of that believe it or not i've actually never set a boat 
on that lake have never seen it up close and personal. So right now I'm, I'm getting ready to uh, more or less kind of doing my pre-preparation, doing some map study, um, you know, just finding out what's, what's going on down there. But uh, trying to get everything in place, you know, spooling up the, the big heavy line to, to try and go down there and uh, uh, do good at, at that BASS Central Open that's coming up. Yeah. You know, what do you look at? I mean, I know you look, you look topple maps and look for structure as much as you can, but how many days of pre-fishing are you going to get? I, I will spend uh, about five days um, pre-fishing uh, for that three-day tournament. So, so you, you're going to be marking structure and fish as much as possible? As much as possible, that's right. You know, it's uh, September is, uh, that latter part of, of September is, is always kind of a of a little bit of rolling the dice because you never know where the fish are going to be but um, regardless you know somebody will get on them and somebody will catch them i can promise you that and hopefully it's me no <laughs> yeah, i hope it's for you too you can, yeah. that way you can take me out to launch that's right all right yeah, need all the help i can get well i tell you what folks we need to take a short break when we come back we're going to have mr alton jones and some other great stuff right here on the edge Give any type of boat the edge with MegaWare Keel Guard. It's simple to install, and we can now beach our boat anywhere. If you own a boat, you need one of these. MegaWare Keel Guard protects the keel of your boat from sand abrasion, from underwater obstructions, even concrete boat ramps. Kit started under $140, and best yet, it's guaranteed to keep on protecting for life. Thanks, MegaWare Keel Guard. Thanks, MegaWare Keel Guard. All right, welcome back to The Edge, and we are joined by veteran BASS elite angler, Alton Jones. Alton, thanks so much uh, for being part of The Edge today. Hey, Aaron, thanks for letting me come on on vi- come on and visit with you guys a little bit this morning. Hey, you bet. Been looking forward to this ever since, uh, you know, the time that we had talked. And, you know, one of the things that's that's going on right now, we're, we're just starting to see some, uh, I guess, uh, reprieve from the heat, you know, with, with heading uh, into the early parts of, of fall, uh, depending on where you're at in the country. But... You know, when when you and I had talked, um, you had brought up an interesting topic, you know, concerning the the backs of creeks, and you know, and that's really an area that I think uh, that uh, possibly gets overlooked a little bit when it comes to to anglers, uh, you know, trying to pursue and, and target bass. Well, I think you're right, and you know, there's particularly in the fall, this period that we're just approaching right now, uh, it, there, there's going to be a certain period on almost every man-made reservoir, especially. Uh, that the very far back end of the creek will become uh, the most productive piece of water uh, on that particular lake. And it happens almost all around the country. The timing may vary just a little bit just because the seasons take place a little earlier up north than they do in the south and that sort of thing. But a bass is a bass. And, and uh, you know, once you learn to match those things, there's some things that you can learn about fishing the backs of the creeks that will give you a distinct advantage over... Uh, the guys you're fishing against. You know, and, and when you're when you're looking at a at a creek, Alton, you know, do those fish live there year round? Are those resident fish? Do you feel? Aaron, that's a great question. I think uh, I think part of the answer to that is yes, and part of it's no. Almost every major creek on any given body of water has a resident population of fish that that live there. Um, it's a it's a smaller population than obviously what lives out in the main part of the lake. But at the same time, at certain times of the year, particularly in the fall, you have a migration of fish back into these creeks. And uh, that's what really enhances these fisheries in the fall is when you, when you get the combination of both the resident fish and fish following bait back into the various creeks uh, uh, during this fall migration. Now, what causes that migration? 
Well, there's several things. One, the cooling of the water, the shad naturally uh, begin to migrate toward the banks of the creeks. A lot of times the fall will have some uh, some rains, uh, not necessarily a flood, but just some, some normal rain, so you'll have a little bit of flow into the creeks. And, uh, you know, the natural tendency of, of almost any fish is to swim upstream. Sure. And so the, the fall, similar to the spring, you usually have some fish that will head toward the back ends of the creeks. So really it comes really down to both a, a food source but also just a, a comfort factor. That's exactly right. That's, those are the two things. Now, there's another factor that comes into play in the fall that's extremely important that a lot of times guys overlook, and that is the turnover of a lake. And if I'm going to try to put a timetable on on when, when are the backs of creeks really going to heat up or become the most effective uh, place to fish on that lake, it's when the lake turns over. Because fishing out of the main body of the water will become difficult, if not impossible, uh, to catch any quality fish. That's the time you really want to fish the backs of the creek because these backs, these far ends of the creeks, are essentially immune to this fall turnover. So you can find areas of the lake that aren't affected by, uh, uh, you know, sudden pH changes and all these different factors that, that happen during the turnover that turn the fish off for a little while. You're fishing fish that are that are still behaving uh, like they're supposed to. Now, is that because that they're, the, the backs of the creeks are not deep enough to actually have a thermocline to where, you know, it's going to create that, that, uh, that turnover? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. You know, the, the back of a creek almost acts like its own separate body of water. So the, the conditions that are taking place out on the deeper, uh, more wide open body of the reservoir uh, won't be necessarily present in the backs of the creeks. In fact, usually aren't. But now, let me point out, too, not every creek is a good creek to fish the back of. I mean, I'm, there's specific certain things that I'm looking for when I'm trying to determine which creeks I should go in. Uh, some of the things that I look in, one is depth. I want, I want a creek that has a well-defined channel way back in it. Now, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a real deep creek, maybe just five to eight feet deep. That's plenty of enough of a well-defined channel. If, as long as it has that five to eight feet of water running back for oh, at least several hundred yards, uh, and some of them, that depth may run back several miles. Um, something else I'm looking for is what I call stability. A stable creek is one that, that even after heavy rains, doesn't tend to muddy up uh, real severely. Or if it does, it clears up quickly after the rain, rain comes in. It's very stable. So under a variety of conditions, you'll find that water to be fishable. And uh, another thing that I like to find, some creeks in the back end are spring-fed, and you can always tell these because the further back you go, the clearer the water will get. So when, when you're trying to identify, let's say you're going to um, a new body of water, you know, okay. do you spend quite a bit of time you know, uh, doing map study and then you know, further following up with your electronics to, to look for these established channels? Well, a lot of times, unfortunately, your electronics, um, uh, the GPS part of the electronics won't necessarily show you which creeks have the well-defined channels in them. Uh, because of siltation, uh, contour lines and things that may have once existed may be gone. So really, you have to go in there and then use just the sonar part of your electronics to determine is that channel really there. And it really is a trial and error thing, unless it's a body of water that you're familiar with so that you know exactly which, which creeks have potential um, and which ones don't. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, I, I did real well a number of years ago at Old Hickory Lake, uh, just outside of Nashville, uh, doing this very thing. It was an October tournament. I couldn't get any patterns going on the main lake, so I started checking the back ends of the creeks. And was having success. And so 
I was just trying to figure out which is the best creek for me to spend my time in. And I noticed one creek that was very difficult. Actually, it seemed impossible to get into because it is silted up in the mouth of it. But if I looked way in the back end of the creek, I could see a nice bluff. I could see where the water got greener back there. It looked like it had some depth, but there was no way to get back there for me to test it. So uh, I decided to uh, back out into deeper water, get my skeeter up to full speed, and try to run the uh, little sand flat and make it back to that deeper water channel. And I, I did that, and in the course I found a submerged laydown and knocked my lower unit off. <laughs> went to the service trailer and got it fixed. And uh, like any smart pro would, I decided to try it again. <laughs> But this time what I did is I went and beached my boat where it silted up. I got out and I waited that flat to find a safe route to run into this creek. And this water was literally for about 50 yards, no more than ankle deep. Uh, but I found out where all the laydowns were and the rocks were and marked me a little path with sticks so I could safely run in. And I, once I ran in there, sure enough, the creek channel, my, my depth finder dropped off to 8 feet deep. And I went in and I should have won the tournament in there. I lost a couple of key fish and still finished in the top five, but... It's just a, you know, a lot of times, like you mentioned earlier, these places are completely overlooked and you have an opportunity to fish for bass that aren't seeing many lures. So just kind of as a, as a quick recap before we go on to what to target those with, you know, you're, you, you pretty much use the, the turnover as a key of when to move from, from the depths to the backs of the creek. Then from that, what you're looking for is more or less a defined channel that has that all the way, you know, through, throughout Throughout the back, I guess. What no, about I want as at least far as several hundred yards of fishable water? I mean, I don't want to go all the way back in a creek and only have, you know, twenty yards to fish. You need something large enough to, to hold a, a a population, a fishable population of bass. What about as far as structure? I mean, does that play a key role in into that as well? Well, obviously, uh, I, I like to have as many trees and uh, you know weeds or whatever as I can in the water, but it's not an absolute necessity. Okay. Creeks, by their very nature, uh, usually you're going to have a steep side and a shallow side. So when you find these creeks, they've almost always got some cover in them. And if they don't have, have, have lay down and other types of wood in there, they'll almost always have some rock. Most, most of our man-made reservoirs in the backs of the creeks, the steep side, the bluff side, is usually rock. Uh, I know here in my area in Texas, it's primarily limestone. And the fish will just hold on those rock banks, especially, especially as, as the weather begins to cool. Sure, and and certainly in the, in the south, I'm sure grass plays into that. In the Midwest, I know docks are a big thing, you know. So, sure, uh, there, there's a lot of keys, I'm sure, that go into that. What about as far as what are you targeting? You know, bait specific. How are you targeting those fish? Well, if you're going to make me just pick one bait that I can use the rest of my life to fish the back end end of a creek, it's going to be a one quarter ounce booyah jig. I like the lightweight, the one quarter ounce, because uh, as the, as the water temperature begins to fall in those bass's metabolism starts to slow down as you as you approach the winter period i want a bait with a slow fall that'll fall through the strike zone uh and slowly so that a bass has a little bit of a time to think about it and decide whether or not to to bite that lure uh black and blue is probably my number one color but i wouldn't i wouldn't shy away from a, a black and brown or a green pumpkin one either uh and the, and the main thing is just pitch it up and let your line go slack let it fall on a slack line and just watch for a little tick in your line and and that's a pretty good indicator that uh it's time to jerk you know and a lot of times that's i think that's often overlooked is so many times as anglers we're waiting to feel that sensation um you know while holding that rod but you know it, it would probably be uh frightening to know how many fish that we've missed by just not paying close attention to the line yeah it, it really is i, I was uh, actually out yesterday i wasn't in the back of a creek but 
just just to your point there, I was fishing a topwater lure very fast and watching fish actually come up and engulf this lure, and I would never feel them. So you really need to watch your line and pay pay a lot of attention, uh, especially when you're fishing a jig. How about as far as terminal tackle? You know, you, you're throwing that that quarter ounce booyah jig. Um, but how key is, is a line, the line that you use in the, in the rod? Well, it's, it's really important. Uh, you know, you, first of all, you've got to have a rod that's very sensitive because if you don't happen to see the strike, you need to, you need to be, be able to feel every branch that that jig makes contact with, uh, every rock, uh, whether it's free-falling or if it lands on the bottom. Uh, and I'm using, I, I usually use a, about a six-and-a-half-foot Kistler medium action, or medium heavy, actually. What I find with that medium heavy action, even though it's a jig, is it lets me pitch and skip that little light quarter ounce jig very accurately. You know, we're, we're talking a shallow water situation, and you've got to have a rod that'll let you place that that jig quietly in the water, or you're going to spook most of the fish before you you ever have a chance to get a bite from them. And that presentation is is just crucial for reasons that you just named. I mean, if you know if you're fishing up against a laydown or a you know a grass line or something, and they're staging right on that, you know, you bounce it off the top of its head and make a big splash. It's probably not going to be there. Oh, it is. You know, and I think people oftentimes overlook the importance of the rod in making that exact, precise presentation. Because uh, if you match the wrong lure with the wrong rod you're not going to be able to make the, the, the proper cast to that fish. Uh, and so, so, you know, to me, to me, it's really, really critical. What about as far as line? You know, you hear a lot of talk between braid, mono, and, and uh, um, fluorocarbon. You know, is, is that a, a factor to your success as well? Well, it is. Um, and, and I'll tell you one of my little secrets that I use, and I use almost always when I'm in that jig fishing situation, I'm using braided line, usually 30-pound test braid and I'm using a fluorocarbon leader. Uh, most of the braid that I throw is, is, is Power Pro, but there's several of them out there that are really good. The thing with, with braid, when you're using these, making these really close, accurate presentations, you can absolutely do it better, better with braid than you can with either monofilament or straight fluorocarbon. Now, like I said, I will attach a fluorocarbon leader, about a four-foot length of it, to the end of that braid because... I like the transparency and the low vis of the fluorocarbon. Plus, it gives me just a little bit of shock absorber, a little bit of shock leader when I set that hook. Sure, and it keeps it from uh, you know yanking it away from it, or certainly jerking the uh, the hook out of its mouth. That's right. So, so by going to the fluorocarbon leader, one, I find that I double my bites, and number two, I find that when I get a bite, I'm boating a much higher percentage of them than I would than I would if I was just using straight braid, for example. Well, and when you're targeting, let's say, with this particular presentation using the jig and the the fluorocarbon braid combo, roughly about how far are you away from the target? Because I'm assuming you're probably target fishing here. You know, how far are you staying away from where you feel that the fish are, are really staging? Sure. Well, I, I'm really. It, it's going to depend a little bit on how clear the water is. Uh, the, the dirtier the water is, the cl- closer I'm likely to be with the boat. But I would say on average I'm 20 to 25 feet away from these targets. And again, in, in these confined areas, shallow water areas, even my boat positioning, I'm trying to be extremely, extremely stealthy. Anything I can do to minimize the fish's awareness of my presence is going to play to my advantage. So I'm going to have my trolling motor on a low speed because I'm usually not fighting the wind because I'm way back in a creek. And I'm going to be very careful about uh, not 
powering that trolling motor on and off any more than I have to because any little extra noises that you make in the boat are, are, are going to add to the possibility of a spooked fish. So, you know, I like to tell people approach fishing the back end of a creek just as you would if you were bow hunting for deer. You have to realize you're going to be trying to get closer to, the, to your targeted game. And uh, you've got to be much more stealthy in the process if you're going to be successful. Sure. Well, in our last minute or two here, Alton, what about as far as away from the jig, you know, using keying on some search baits? Uh, is there a particular search bait that maybe that you will uh, front run or, or lead into the back of a creek with and then come back and, you know, fish it more thoroughly with, with the jig? Yeah, there, there, there is. I'm almost hesitant to say it because it, it's a, it's. It's one that a lot of people don't even have in their box, but I'll tell you what it is. It's a Cotton Cordell Big O. It's one of the oldest crankbaits on the market, uh, but I find it's, it's very underutilized. It's a very buoyant bait, which means when I bump it into a log or a rock or stuff, it'll really easily float up over. It's one of the most weedless crankbaits you can ever fish, and it's a shallow runner. It'll dive, oh, two to three feet on, say, 14-pound test fluorocarbon line, which is what I fish it on. And uh, that is usually my first pass through any creek, will be with a with a fire tiger colored big o well there you have it we'll just keep that between the three of us so we won't tell anybody (laughs) (laughs) well listen it's uh i know we've got some exciting times you're actually you're you're right on the eve here of uh of getting ready for toho uh so certainly we we wish you the best of luck there but uh you and i are going to get to spend some time together in in 2008 as as we head to to texas so I'm, i'm certainly looking forward to that as well well, I am, too. Hopefully, we'll have some big fish to show everybody, and uh, I look forward to seeing you when you get down here. Absolutely. So, hey, Alton, we wish you the best of luck uh, this coming week there on Toho, and uh, really thank you for being part of the Edge. Okay, Aaron, this has been my pleasure. God bless. Well, Aaron, i got to tell you, I, I learned a lot from Mr. Jones, and, you know, it's a, neat to see that the passion that he still has after been doing this for a while is up where it is. Well, and he is he is just one of the, the class guys that's on tour. He's, he's been there a long time, but, you know, he takes such a, a just a, a cerebral approach to fishing. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I've heard other pros say is, is talking about his interviews and and, and then things that he does is, you know, he's like the pro's pro. He he can teach anyone anything, and, and that just uh, what he brings to the table is, is just just really neat. Yeah. You know, I don't really never would have thought of fishing the backs of the creeks as the water cools down. You know, you'd figure that you'd, the deeper you go, the more the thermocline and changes, the fish are going to be staging in those. But after what he said, what he said, I, I kind of make sense. Well, and, and it does. And I liked how that, you know, there's always, when you get in a transition period of where, you know, you've got changing water temperatures and, and fish are starting to, to move uh, based upon the seasonal changes, you know, I like the point that he brought out about how he uses the, the turnover situation of, of the lake or the body of water that he's fishing as an indicator of when he kind of makes that transition from fishing that deeper structure, you know, back to the to the back ends of the creeks well let me ask you a question you, you know because you fish a lot more than i do but you know what do you look for in between the temperatures of like shallow water or you know deeper water are you looking for like a consistent temperature or do you look for variances um i'm looking for you know in in the spring is is uh, and, and the fall is more or less in reverse but in the spring as you're coming out of winter you're looking for the water warmest water 
possible okay. because that's where the fish are going to be active. And then likewise, then coming out of the summer, heading into early fall, you're really trying to identify, you know, that, that cooler water. And uh, like Alton had pointed out, you know, the beauty about the back ends of creeks are that the, with them being a little bit shallower, uh, normally they're not going to be as impacted as much, nearly as much, with a lake turnover of where, you know, when that turnover happens, what happens is that thermocline busts apart and it stratifies the oxygen, scattering oxygen, you know, throughout the water column. So that's why you have some fish that are deep, some that are shallow, and they're really just harder to pinpoint. And he believes that, you know, by targeting the backs of these creeks, uh, A, they're less impacted, B, uh, you know, if it's a stable creek, meaning that one that's one of the things that he brought out is looking for stability. If it does come a rain, that it's not going to uh, remain muddy for a long period of time, but it, it really has that stability. He wants that creek channel uh, that, that goes through the center of it and really looks for 100 to 200 yards of fishable water mm -hmm. because then he knows that there's not only resident fish, but there's going to be migratory fish that will be moving back into the backs of those creeks following the bait fish as that water cools down and it becomes not only a predatory situation for food, but also a comfort level. Yeah, I, I like that tip about the five to eight foot channel because I agree with you. You're going to get a lot of transportation up and down those creek beds and, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, they're just highways. And, and how about, uh, you know, him trying to find that, that one creek channel and ended up knocking his, his lower unit off uh, trying yeah. to get back there. So yeah. I well, don't recommend that. I haven't knocked off my motor, but I, everything else is pretty much when I can relate to that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, hey, it's time to take another break, folks. We're going to be right back with the product giveaway and listener section right here on The Edge. When I'm fishing in a tournament, time is critical. I need fast, easy access to my lures. My Cook's go-to tackle system keeps my bait organized, tangle-free, and within easy reach. It installs in minutes under any deck lid, maximizing the storage space in my boat. And its durable construction lasts even through the harshest conditions. Get organized with Cook's tackle system by calling 1-888-390-8780 or online at cooksgoto.com. All right, welcome back to The Edge Outdoors, Dan here. I've got my buddy Aaron Martin, and you know, Aaron, this is always my favorite part of the podcast. Yeah, we razzed you a little bit last week, you know, Steve did, about uh, this is always always the funnest part, and you know, he tried to give me a little trouble because he wasn't entered in on the drawing, but hey. Really? I, I love giving stuff away. Well, that's the best part. You know, people love it, too, and you know, it's uh, this week's lucky winner is going to get a wonderful, wonderful prize, and that Ardent Real Cleaning Kit, Aaron, I think everyone can use that. Well, no question. I mean, you don't have to, certainly don't have to be uh, in competition, but anyone that fishes, obviously, from just uh, normal use of reels and also then just keeping in, in storage of where we store them, they tend to get dirty and used, and so it's important, you know, keep them well lubricated and greased. Yeah, that's always one of my favorite times. The things to do right before spring is tear down all my reels and, you know, make sure everything's there, put new line, and just go yeah. through the tackle box. And, you know, I know this week's winter will enjoy that. And it actually goes out to somebody in Virginia, and I believe it's Frank in Manassas, isn't that, it? That's right. That's right. So he's not only going to get the kit, but hopefully a cure for cabin fever uh, whenever he takes the time to be able to do that. Well, congratulations, Frank. And that leads us to this week's question. And Aaron, I know that you always love talking about the questions, so let's go see what Jeff in Santa Fe, Santee, California, wants to talk about. Yeah, he, he writes in, and, uh, you know, Jeff has, has actually sent in a couple different questions, and, and they're always good, so I appreciate him taking time to do that. But from what I gather, uh, he's stating that drop shotting is a good choice to place your worm above weeds on the bottom and when fish are suspended. 
but he is confused at how to decide when to use each method. You know, he says that it seems to him that for drop shotting, you would usually, you know, want to use a more buoyant plastic uh, rather than something that is going to be more dense. And uh, his question is, when do you choose to drop shot Texas rig or Carolina rig? Also, is drop shotting a good method when fishing from the shore? Anyway, just trying to learn. Well, Jeff, uh, we're all about the learning, and, and we appreciate the question. But to, to start out with, you know, drop shotting is predominantly a finesse presentation, uh, which utilizes smaller baits. So you are correct in your assumption of, you know, more buoyant plastics uh, so that it will help keep the bait uh, standing out perpendicular to the line. Um, you know, the other thing that that buoyancy does is, in a finesse presentation, a lot of people don't realize, especially when you're fishing these in a vertical presentation for suspended fish, uh, you don't have to move that rod and reel, um, but just a tiny, tiny bit. And normally I'll just take my index finger and just lay it on top of my spinning rod and just tap it a couple times. And by using those buoyant plastics like you're talking about in those smaller baits, that action, just that subtle action, the fish can't resist it. Uh, as far as when to choose a uh, drop shot over, let's say, a Texas rig or Carolina rig has more to do with the type of the structure and the response of the fish. You know, if I am uh, fishing extremely heavy cover, such as brush piles or some dense grass, often I'll employ, you know, the Texas rig or the Carolina first in order to aid in, in bringing that bait uh, through the cover, um, you know, being able to fish that cover thoroughly and trying to minimize, you know, snags and hangups. In addition, you know, the Texas rig it's a lot more friendly for presenting the bait to a target and making subtle or accurate presentations. You know, if you're flipping up against a stump or along a dock, uh, you want that bait to get right in there because maybe those fish are nosed in against it. Uh, you want to make sure that you get that bait placed precisely, also uh, where it's very, very subtle so that you don't splash it on top of its head and spook that fish. That's a little bit harder to do with a drop shot just because of the nature of the rig and trying to cast it. A lot of times, you know, I fish that on a, on a spinning reel. But mm -hmm. the Carolina rig and, and drop shot work great on highly pressured fish. Um, and the reason being is because, you know, a, a lot of times, especially as the summer progresses, you know, a lot of anglers get out there uh, during the summer and and fish and bass become accustomed to seeing the same, you know, say Texas rig that has the bullet weight down against the, you know, the nose of the bait. Um, when they pick that up, they feel that, and and they just become very educated on that. And so I believe that's why a lot of these finesse presentations, such as the drop shot, uh, are, are very very effective, um, you know, for for getting these bait, or rather getting these fish uh, to bite your bait. But um, bottom line is, it's a great presentation. It also is a great method to employ. Uh, from the shore, especially around, you know, if, if, if you have the opportunity to walk the shoreline and get on a point, I love making a cast with that drop shot and uh, just working it back up the point towards you. But be prepared, you know, if you're fishing a rocky point or something along those lines, you know, since you don't have the ability, if you get hung up, to go out there with your boat and, and undo it, uh, you possibly might, might lose, you know, some weights uh, in doing that. So make sure you take a handful of weights and, and potentially even have some of those pre-rigged up so that you can maximize, you know, your time of catching. So great question. Yeah, you know, and I was going to ask you about that. You know, if drop shotting from, from the shore, that, to me, you're going to get tangled up quite a bit, especially if you're on those rock jetties and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's it, you know it's something that you want to uh, use if if you have the ability to to where the fish are actually holding on to some of the pea gravel uh, mm -hmm. to where you don't have quite as many rocks, but you know still uh, it goes back to that old adage: if you're not getting hung up, sometimes you're not going to get where the fish are either. So 
Um, you know, that's one of those things, if you are fishing from the shoreline, due to the expense of the actual drop shot weights that have the clips where they clip on your line, uh, another great weight that's a lot less expensive is just what's called that casting sinker that has, you know, that barrel swivel that's, that's molded into uh, the lead itself. Uh, they're a lot cheaper. They work just as well uh, in that 3 8 ounce version, save you a little money, and then that way that keeps your line in the water as well. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, great questions this week, and uh, don't forget, folks, to send in a question or a comment. You will be in the weekly drawing as well. Simply uh, send us an email at podcast at bassedge.com with your name and address in the body of the email, and we'll have you in there. And You know, Aaron, we need to take another break, and when we get back, we're going to join uh, a gentleman that you know, but I do not know, and that's Keith Nesmith. Yeah, that's right. Keith uh, is a vicious uh fishing line and he is going to bring us up to speed on a lot of questions that we've been getting lately uh, concerning fishing line well i look forward to that folks keep it right here on the edge we'll be right back you've got the truck you've got the toys now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both it's the tow and stow receiver hitch by b&w you want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The Tow and Stow Receiver Hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge. All right, we are back on the edge, and I have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Keith Neesmith of uh, JBS Fishing, which is also the parent company of Vicious. Keith, thanks so much for being part of the edge. Aaron, I appreciate you taking my call and taking time to visit with us. Absolutely. You know, we have had a tremendous amount of questions, and, and rightfully so, you know, concerning fishing line. But before we get into that, why don't you, can you, can you give me a little breakdown of how, um, you know, Vicious and, and JBS uh, fishing got started and, and, and started to make a presence, you know, within the, the fishing line market. Sure, that's no problem. Uh, we'll keep it down to the uh, short version. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the story can get kind of long, but the the background behind our company is uh, we used to spool for uh, Strand. Uh, we did all the spooling for Strand products when DuPont owned it, and um, the Strand brand has changed hands uh, several times, and in the changing of hands, um, we lost the contract, and um uh, and didn't own a brand ourselves so what happened was we sat around and for uh, about two years we developed a, a line that we felt like was uh, superior in quality and uh, and so it's going to be superior in price and um, we sat around and uh, came up with a, a great logo and a great brand name and uh, a great strategy and uh, launched vicious into the marketplace and uh july of 06 and uh, the rest has been history yeah you know and, and, and since then obviously having a, a history uh, based in you know being a um, basically a supplier or manufacturer under a different label i'm sure you've had plenty of opportunity to sit back and, and study and really understand and get your hands around what makes a, a quality fishing line which ultimately pr- probably led to the research and development under the the uh, the vicious brand we have we've seen um We've seen all the brands come through. Um, I'm, I know some of the older people out there remember, uh, you know, Strand's had several brands, not only just uh, Strand Original. We did uh, a lot of the Magnathin, a lot of the uh, a lot of the old stuff, and actually uh, used to used to braid here and came out with some of the first braids that ever came out with that were um, obviously to these date standards not real well, but at the time they were superior. Sure. Um, so we have seen uh, uh, different types, different sizes, different colors. 
um, different uh, strengths and weaknesses, and, and we feel like we'll, we combined the best of all the worlds into our product. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, transitioning that into, as far as there's, there's numerous brands, numerous types, very sure that a lot of them are good, but can you help us understand when, if, if I'm a, an angler and walking into any you know, major or just bait store, major sporting goods store, what have you, and, and I'm looking to, to buy a line, you know, how do I break down the different types and colors and, and things like that as far as what is applicable and what is a superior line? Well, first, let me start with when you walk into a line uh, and everybody's been there, but done that, and looked at the wall, it is very overwhelming. There are many different brands, there are many different types, there are many different colors. It is, it's even overwhelming for me when I walk in. Um, so, you know, the, the first person that is the first thing that's going to grab their attention is packaging. Everybody likes good packaging. Um, and the, you know, the second thing is going to be price. Um, for, for your largest amount of fishermen, it's going to be those two things. But, but to get more advanced and to get into the advanced fisherman mind, which probably 90% of the people listening to your podcast are, um, are going to be looking into these things. That, you know, one, just start with, you got to start with, um, you know, what are you going to be fishing for? What species? Uh, what application, whether you're going to be flipping or um, pitching or crankbait or worm fishing or uh, brim fishing or, you know, you know what kind of application we're looking for. And uh, it can be overwhelming. So, you know, Aaron, how scientific do you want to get? Do you want to get into uh, qualities? And yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think we should break it down, you know, obviously targeting bass, um, but just walking through those applications, you know, okay. what what is the best um best for for each of those categories and then you throw in you know the fluorocarbon versus copolymer help us understand and educate us on you know what what we need to be looking for all right well we'll do our best and we'll shoot that direction um you know every every brand of fishing line is going to have different characteristics so i'm going to speak in i'm going to speak in generalities uh of course we we like our product and we're going to try, try to sell our product but let's let's inform the consumer right now of just generalities of fishing line no question um you know First thing, you have pound tests. Um, pound tests to the consumer is rated in pounds, but in the manufacturing industry, we, we actually rate pound tests based off diameter. Um, uh, everybody does it different. That's, it's the uh, unique and weird thing about the fishing industry. Technically, there is not a standard set, so uh, not all 12-pound line is going to be uh, .013 inches in diameter. Uh, some's going to be smaller, some's going to be bigger. It just depends on what you're looking for. Um, diameter can, can do several things. It can um, obviously make the, the line bigger, uh, more wiry, uh, harder to handle. Um, it can also uh, affect the way your baits fish. Um, your crankbaits might not get as deep, they might get too deep, uh, things like that. So first thing you take into effect is um, what pound test you want to fish and uh, what, di- what the diameter of that pound test is. The second thing is going to be um, you know, each brand's going to have a different percent of stretch. Uh, some brands uh, get up into the 40% stretch. Some brands get down into the 15 to 20%. Vicious, uh, uh, on average, breaks anywhere from between the 18 to 22% stretch range, which is uh, on the lower end of, of the market. Uh, we feel like that gives us several things. It gives you lack of memory. It gives you better handability. Gives you a better hook set, and then you got to take into effect uh, whether you're going to go copolymer fluorocarbon. There's a well, and one thing before you jump on, you know, talking about stretch. I mean, I I fish a jig a lot of times, and you know, one thing that you don't want is if if you're up 
close and personal to a piece of structure and you're trying to, you know, horse that fish over a, a boat dock cable or out of a brush pile, you know, you want to make dang sure that you you see that line move or you feel that sensation on the end of the, your line to be able to get that fish hooked up and out of that stuff as quickly as possible. That's true, and uh, and stretch plays a big role in that, and 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 stretch does play uh, a role in um, in the sensitivity of the line. But I think it's uh, we we think that it's a little overhyped. We think that a lot of sensitivity comes more from the denseness. Um, let's use a railroad track uh, as an example. Um, railroad ties, you know, they're real dense, they're made of metal, and you can hear things coming from miles away. You can feel the vibrations. Well, uh, fishing lines a lot like that. The denser the raw material the better the sound vibrations uh, and sound waves and the vibrations travel up that line um, and that's the reason fluorocarbon is more more sensitive than copolymers because of the uh, it, it can be because of the lack of stretch but it's we we can we feel like it's contributed more to the uh, the the denser aspect of so it. in other words the density you want actually a higher density level that's true uh, you want a higher density level um, uh, that that property is not advertised. Um, it hasn't ever been. I don't know why. You know, I don't know why it's not. Uh, we don't advertise it either. Uh, we have had our products tested by an independent lab, and they will test the density of it. And um, one of our biggest compliments is how sensitive our copolymer is, and it's because we use a dense raw material. Um, it came in. Uh, we tested five other brands, and ours came out as as the densest of the five. And we feel like that's that's the reason it's so sensitive. Um, plus, plus the low mass stretch it has in it. Sure. So, what is the difference then between a fluorocarbon and a copolymer? And when would you use a copolymer over a fluorocarbon? Uh, a lot of that's going to be application specific. Um, uh, most, most the you know the number one reason people use fluorocarbon they say it's uh, invisible underwater. Uh, they use it in clear lakes. It has fluorocarbon has a light refractive index of one point four. Um, water has a light refractive index of 1.3. So the closer you get to 1.3, the the less uh, light it puts off and the more invisible it's going to be. Uh, monofilament has a light refractive index of 1.5. Um, so, you know, just varying by those numbers, you can tell that one is going to be more invisible than the other. Um, the second reason people use fluorocarbon is, is because of the weight of it and because of the denseness. Um, one, it's more sensitive to you do that, and two, it gives you a a different fall rate. So, if you're fishing a weightless Senko and you want it to fall faster, or uh, a lot of people use crankbait as an example, you want that 18, you know, 18 foot diving crankbait to get to actually get to 18 or 19 and a half. You can do that. Um, Jason Quinn says, you know, he can he can upsize his line. He can go from 12 to 15 and get deeper and uh, and. And still, you know, that way he can increase his strength, gets deeper, and the line's still sensitive, and it's uh, and still invisible, so he's not losing bites uh, due to fish seeing the line. So, um, a lot of people use monofilament for top water because it because it doesn't sink. So, if you use a fluorocarbon fish on top water, it'll pull your bait down. You won't get that same action that you're supposed to get that you're supposed to get with it. So, are there times when um, you know monofilament or copolymer outweigh? Um, outweigh the fluorocarbon? I think so. I think so, Aaron. Uh, I don't think we're ever going to get away from monofilament. One, it's just uh, it's a great value. It's a great all-around fishing line. It's great for certain techniques. Um, you know, we, we're located in Birmingham, Alabama, or Dora, which is right outside of Birmingham, 
and um, we've got I've got a lake 20 minutes from here, Smith Lake, that's super clear that that you would need to use fluorocarbon on. But I've I've got a a lake, you know, several lakes an hour from here, Gunnersville and Logan Martin, that uh, aren't as clear that are uh, a little a little more muddier. And uh, I like to use monof- I like to use copolymer um, exclusively. I don't use much fluorocarbon. Um, I I just I don't feel like I miss that many bites. Uh, I don't. I feel like it's a little bit stronger than fluorocarbon. And it handles a lot better. Uh, fluorocarbon is known to be a little wiry, a little more stiff, um, and that's just an aspect of the raw material. Uh, we haven't figured out a way to make it as supple as a copolymer yet. So, so is copolymer the same as monofilament, or are those two different things? Uh, they they are. It is the same. I apologize for using two different terms. Oh there. no no no. That's, uh, that's a good a question. A copolymer is a copolymer is a monofilament. Okay. Uh, a copolymer is a monofilament made with two different two or more different nylons. Um, the the original, the string original back in the day was just a straight was just a straight nylon. It was made using one nylon, and um, uh, those lines handle real well. But they, when you combine more than one, you can get just so many more characteristics and so much so much more abrasion resistance out of it. Um, and that's that's why the copolymer line was created. So te- technically speaking, then the, the copolymer, or as we know it, the the mono as well. Uh, has a higher abrasion resistance because you're essentially you're you're putting together two uh, strands of nylon versus just a single. That's right. You're mixing together two or more uh, different types of nylon that can give you more more characteristics and are better characteristics when they combine with each other than just using one. And conversely, fluorocarbon is just a single. It it is, but it's not a nylon. It is a single raw material, to my knowledge. But it's just a it is. It is fluorocarbon. It's called fluorocarbon, where copolymers and monofilaments uh, is made of nylon. That's correct. So then some of the, it, it almost sounds like a little bit, myself included, that, that there's a little bit of a myth buster from the standpoint that, you know, density has more of an impact on the effectiveness of fluorocarbon, um, and then couple that with line diameter of being able to get, a per se, you know, let's, let's say in a crankbait situation, you can actually get that bait to go deeper, or you can actually upscale the size or the pound test, which is measured off of diameter, uh, and still not lose any effectiveness of, of the, the bait action. Uh, that's true, Aaron. Um, that That's our thinking behind it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that's going to disagree, and that and that's fine. Um, it's, it's difficult to test that aspect right now, so we don't have any uh, scientific uh, results to, to show or to prove, except for the fact that, you know, in the independent test, we know for a fact that uh, there are brands of fluorocarbon out there that actually have uh, 45 to 55 percent stretch in them, sure. um, and people still claim that they are more sensitive than a copolymer that has 30 percent stretch. So that just that leads you to believe that it is the denseness, and it makes sense. Sure. Um, and so that's where we draw our conclusion from that. Well, in our in our closing minute here, what you know, what advice can you give to anglers when, when selecting line? I mean, is there, uh, let's say, for flipping and pitching? Um, you know, th- flipping a, a jig or, or a Texas rig, what is, is the best application or the number one seller that, that you have um, for kind of an all-purpose line? Uh, I, the number one, app, the number one you know, seller for us is, is definitely going to be the, uh, the copolymer and the fluorocarbon in 12 and 15-pound test. It's an all-around pound test. It will catch almost anything you're going you're gonna to hook. Um, I, just, I encourage the anglers to, you know, to pay attention to every part of their uh, utility that they're using. Um, you know, you've got to make sure if you use the right line with the right rod, 
with the right drag setting, um, with the right bait. It takes it's a whole component. It's not just line's not just one aspect of fishing. It's got to be the whole the whole setup, or you can miss that fish. And everything has to work in sync. That's true. Well, Keith, uh, g- just great information, and certainly you know I I found that very interesting as far as uh, the the diameter. Uh, both pound test as well as the density of the line. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but where can uh, our listeners find out more information uh, concerning Vicious? Uh, please visit us at www.vicious-fishing.com. Email us any questions you have, and if I confuse anybody, please email us, and uh, we'll try to clear it up. Excellent stuff. Keith, thanks so much for being part of The Edge. Aaron, we appreciate it, and we appreciate your show. Well, Aaron, I got to tell you, that was really neat. I like Keith Ness. Yeah, he he certainly knows his stuff. Just given his you know his history in the industry, uh, prior to them even starting uh, Vicious themselves, you know they did a lot of uh, a lot of spooling for other larger companies, and that certainly gave them the ability to see a lot of line come through their plants and and have the opportunity to do a lot of research and and development, uh, you know, on their products. So I I, th- I think it's a great product. Yeah, and you know the neatest thing? They're made 100% in the United States. That's right. All right there. Uh, I think it's uh, actually in Alabama, if, if I remember right. And um, so that's great. But, you know, one of the things that he pointed out that, that just really, if you could probably tell from the interview, kind of set me back was when he had mentioned uh, that sensitivity of fluorocarbon has more to do with a line density or the denseness of the material than what it does with stretch, you know, mm-hmm. and he compared that to a set of railroad tracks because, you know, those are very dense and you can feel that vibration or that train coming from a long ways away. You know, and the market, uh, the the industry really does a poor job of letting people know that because they're selling more of the stretch has to do with the sensitivity of fluorocarbon. So I thought that was a, just a fantastic point. And then, and then the other thing as far as pound test of how that, you know, to the consumer it's actually rated in pounds, but in the industry, it's standard to they actually measure the diameter to tell the you know the strength of line. So a lot, a lot of great stuff. Yeah, you know, fluorocarbon. You hooked me onto that, no pun intended, last year, and I it, it it's a great example because I know you told me more sensitive. You know, it was more sensitive, and that fluorocarbon sank. It did not stay on top. Right. So the, that is a great way to explain it using the the railroad. Yeah. Uh, analogy I, I think so and you know and, and, the, and the final thing was just when he was talking about how uh, the wide array of stretch uh, in those lines and how the industry ranges from you know really from anywhere to uh, to the low teens to to the high 40s and that's mm-hmm. a that's a large margin or a large spread so you know when you start thinking about it that can have a, an impact on how especially like a crankbait how that reacts in the water so yeah, anyway. plus he was dead on about the hook sets. No question, no question. Yeah, that was pretty neat. Well, you know, I can't believe it. We're out of time again, but, you know, next week we've got a really special show coming up and uh, talk about Kings of Kings. <laughs> the 2007 reigning Bassmasters Classic Champion will be on, and I believe that is Mr. Boyd Duckett. That is right, you know, and also just won uh, the recent Legends uh, Tournament. And, you know, he's amassed over $850,000 this year. Um, so... A lot of good stuff. It's going to be a great interview. I can't wait for that one. Yeah, and then we're going to have Dr. Jay on talking about his book, The Psychology of Exceptional Fishing. And you know what, folks? You're going to also get a chance to uh, win another great prize, and it's all going to be right here on the Edge. But in the meantime, you can visit us at www.bassedge.com for podcast information, for the TV show stuff, and 
Plus, you get a chance to look at Aaron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that'll, I'm sure that'll make their day. So. Well, sure it will. Well, you better get them sent off, or otherwise they're going <laughs> to. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this week. For Aaron Martin, this is Outdoors Dan. You keep it right here on the edge, and we'll see you next time. This week's edition of Bass Edges, The Edge, has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Cook's Tackle Management Systems, Locker Bar Boat Security Systems, and MegaWare Keel Guard. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com.